Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. So glad to be with you here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I pray that you're blessed in the Lord and that you're pumped and excited and ready to dive right in to our chronological teaching of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Today is podcast 87, and we're almost entering into the final week, the Passion Week of Jesus. And today's title is Anointing Jesus for Death. So if you see where we're at in this podcast, we're now in John chapter 11, going into John chapter 12. It, this is also some of the stories we're going to be talking about today is highlighted in Matthew 26, 6 through 13 and Mark 14, 3 through 9. And the big highlight on today's podcast is when Mary anoints Jesus and prepares his body to be sacrificed. And of course, the big uproar that took place as a result of it. So to bring up to speed, remember, Jesus just came from Jericho. And he had dined with Zacchaeus, and that was in podcast 86. And we saw that in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And he told a parable, remember, the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, 11 through 27. And that was all about faithful service in his kingdom. And so his final Passover is drawing near. And Jesus, at this point in time, he goes into Bethany, which was just outside of Jerusalem. And he goes there to dine with Lazarus, with Mary, and with Martha. Now, I thought it important to note what A.T. Robertson kind of lays out in this segment in his commentary about how Jesus arrived into Bethany, because John doesn't necessarily mention it, but when you add the different gospel accounts, we have an understanding. So he writes this, these came from the country, from all over Palestine, from all parts of the world, in fact. John shifts the scene to Jerusalem, just before the Passover with no record of the way that Jesus came to Jerusalem from Ephraim. The Synoptic Gospels tell this last journey up through Samaria into Galilee to join the great caravan that crossed over into Berea and came down on the eastern side of the Jordan opposite Jericho and then marched up the mountain road to Bethany and Bethphage just beside Jerusalem. So you could imagine Jesus and his disciples are very tired before they enter Jerusalem so this is where we now pick things up in John chapter 11, verses 55 to chapter 12, verse 1. And this is a plot to arrest Jesus. Notice verse 55 of John 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So once again, we see something about purification. Now this is important because remember, any legal uncleanliness, which would disqualify a Jew from observing Passover... It required them to receive specific purification, to go through a certain cleansing. So there were ritual pools were that, that were there that were customary before entering the temple. So if you wanted to partake into, you know, going into the temple for one and then partaking of the Passover feast, you needed to go through the ritual pools for cleansing. And remember the Passover, it was preceded by seven days of purification according to Exodus 12 verse 15. 
And then a sacrifice would be offered to spare the Jews from death, according to Exodus 12, 13 through 27. Now, one commentary provides us insight about water of purification, saying, The liquid used in an ancient purification ritual to cleanse one from the defilement incurred by coming into close contact with human death, either by touching a human bone, a grave, or a corpse, or by entering a tent where someone had died. An unblemished red heifer that had never been put under the yoke was sacrificed and the blood sprinkled toward the sanctuary. The heifer's body was then burned with cedar wood along with hyssop and scarlet, possibly wool, and the ashes collected and preserved. They were to be mixed with living running water and sprinkled upon the defiled person using a branch of hyssop on the third and seventh day after the defilement. After bathing washing their clothes, the individuals would then be considered clean and acceptable in the community again. The mixture of water and ashes would also be sprinkled on the tent and its furnishings if a death had occurred within the tent. This is all according to Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 22, Numbers 31, 21 through 24, end quote. So you see the extensiveness as the caravans of people were coming into Jerusalem, they had to follow the cleansing that was preceding the Passover with not just the pools of water, but also with the sacrifice of the red heifer and how they mixed it and they bathed and they washed their clothes and then they became clean. So this is very extensive. So at this point, a lot of people are around the temple and they're going through cleansing. And so that's why in verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to feast at all? So remember, the people that were standing inside the temple had already gone through their cleansing and they're looking for Jesus, thinking he was going to be there. Now, perhaps many of the Jews, and I, I tend to think this, they were asking this question and they're wondering, will he repeat the same cleansing he did? Remember just a few years ago when he started his Galilean ministry in John chapter two, verses 13 through 25. And I believe that as they're going through this cleansing, Jesus was cleansing the temple the first time and the second time. And they're anticipating that. And of course, we know that he is about to do that. So I, under, I believe they understood what he was doing by turning over the tables and, and, and basically rebuking the money changers. Now, verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, let's go back to a couple of verses because you can read that and move on, but we have to remember throughout the public ministry of Jesus, the religious leaders time and time again sought ways to kill him, to stone him, to have him arrested. So when you take a look at John eight fifty nine, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So even back then, just a few years before this, they wanted to kill Jesus in the temple. John 10, 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. John 10, 39, again, they sought to arrest him. John eleven fifty three. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Matthew 26, verse four, they plotted together to arrest him. So things were intensifying, but notice we're told now as we transition to the story of Jesus being anointed at Simon the leper's house in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, Mark 14, 3 through 9, and John 12, 1 through 8. Now, as always, as I mentioned to you guys here on the podcast, my notes are available because I, I show the three different stories that Matthew, Mark, and John give. I show the similarities and then where they add more detail and I put it into one big narrative so that you and I can have a better understanding 
of this particular account. So in John chapter 12, verse 1 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, this was either after sunset on Friday evening or right at the commencement of the Jewish Passover. Now, it's interesting to note, by the way, here that Jesus is dining with probably his closest friend, Lazarus, the man whom he raised from the dead. And it's also interesting at this timetable because Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, obviously, to be crucified, and he will rise from the dead on Easter Sunday. Now, Mark 14, verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, John 12, verse 2 says, They gave a dinner, a banquet, a feast for him, that is Jesus, and Martha served in Lazarus, was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, it seems that Simon, the leper here, was at one time in Jesus's Galilee ministry healed. Now, the Gospels don't necessarily, they don't mention directly the name of Simon. The only occurrence that we could probably connect Simon is in Mark chapter one, verse 40, where it says, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, saying to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, whatever the case, that could be Simon, maybe it isn't. But we do know here that Simon was a very close friend of Jesus. Here he's hosting this banquet before Passover. And once again, who's serving everybody? Martha. We see in Luke 10, verse 41 through 42, John eleven twenty, John 12, 2 here. Martha is serving. I love that. Now, one commentator writes, can you imagine the excitement and the atmosphere? The celebrated master teacher, his 12 illustrious and privileged disciples, the resurrected Lazarus and the healed leper. This surely was a unique banquet. Yet into all this excitement and anticipation, was Jesus going to be proclaimed Messiah? Mary introduced the ultimate somber note, preparation for Jesus's death. So when you see now in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, and as Jesus was reclining at table, John 12, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment. And you might be wondering, what's the big deal with this, this ointment other than the fact that it's said it's expensive and there's a pound of it well what this was was a perfume that came from a plant root alongside the Ganges river in india so this is shipped into israel and so it was very expensive as a result of it and we're also told here by john that it was made from a pure or an unadulterated nard and she used it to anoint the feet of jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, Matthew 26, verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. And Mark 14, verse 4 records them asking the question, why was the ointment wasted like that? Now, I got to say, because sometimes some people get confused and you go back to Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, there was an anointing as well there. But this, this is a separate account. Jesus was anointed in the beginning of his ministry and he's anointed here at Simon Leper's house by Mary before he gives up his life. So now when you look at this incident thinking, what is Mary doing here? Well, remember, it was customary upon arrival for a servant to wash the guest's feet and to anoint their head with oil. So Mary, on the other hand, she decides to go above and beyond that. And when she does this, she's committing four unsuitable actions during the meal, however. And this puts things in perspective because sometimes we read through this and think, no big deal, great for her. Well, the first unsuitable action here is that she interrupted the banquet that was for men only. A second unsuitable action was that she put her hair down in a public room that was filled with men. A third unsuitable action 
was that she misused the ointment to do this. And of course, that's why the disciples and Judas especially, we're going to see in a minute, gets on her. And the fourth unsuitable action was that Mary washed Jesus's feet with her hair. So one commentary writes, women's hair was considered a primary visual temptation for young men. In some places, including Judea, a wife who went in public without her hair covered would thus be deemed immodest, dishonoring herself in the eyes of others. Those prone to gossip might consider her promiscuous. Some husbands even consider this an appropriate reason to divorce their wives on grounds of infidelity. So you can see now why this was such a big deal. So in John 12, 4 through 6, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So this reaction that John records outside of what Matthew and Mark mention, it reveals once again, the deceiving heart of Judas and his need for approval. See, because in one instance, we're, we see here in Mark 14, verse 5, and they scolded, meaning in response to this, the disciples attack her. But as Judas who steps in there, and again, he's quantifying what she had done in, term, in terms of money, right? They were just saying, man, what a waste. But Judas is one that steps in there, the accountant, right? The smart guy. And he's like, this could have been sold for 300 denarii. And not only that, but you know, we could have gave this to the poor. What a waste. And, but the words here shows the condemnation that they have towards Mary and she's insulting them also by being in their presence. And it causes now the others to turn against her because no one sees the importance of what Mary just did and why she did it. In their mind, Jesus didn't deserve this kind of reaction from Mary. Now notice again, nobody's responding and looking to Jesus in a way of saying, hey, what, what do you think? Is this okay? Just like remember when they came and they're bringing their children to Jesus, they're like, get out of here, leave him alone. He doesn't want to be bothered. They never asked Jesus if that was true. And the same applies here. One commentator writes, Mary depicts the devout follower, the true Christian, whereas the other character in this drama, Judas, presents the opposite, the self-serving hypocrite. So as I mentioned before here in Mark 14 now, in verse five, they're scolding her in Greek. They're criticizing. They spoke harshly of her. So now they're just insulting her and berating her in front of Jesus and the guests. Now, all this is being played out in front of Jesus. And again, they're not asking Jesus what he thought. They're just attacking her and they immediately condemn her in the presence of Jesus. Mark 14, verse six through nine. But Jesus said, leave her alone, meaning let it be. Why do you trouble in the Greek, this word trouble? Why do you work so hard in, at implying difficulties? And then he says to his disciples and to his guests, Mary has done a beautiful, meaning she's done an exemplified thing here, something of great quality. Her characteristics are very pleasing to me. Verse seven of Mark 14, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. This is in Greek, not a spontaneous thing, but a very planned thing for burial which implies in the context here that Mary was anticipating this. So as Martha was probably planning out the meal and preparing for it, planning ahead, Mary was planning ahead to anoint Jesus. Verse nine, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will 
be told in memory of her. So Jesus, as he always does, and I love this, he steps in after allowing this criticism and he contrasts their beliefs and their behavior to that of Mary's. He's saying she has done the honorable thing. She has done the exemplified thing. Her characteristics, though, in our culture may be seen as unsuitable. Mary has showed honor while the rest of you guys are showing discontentment. Now, this phrase, anointed my body before burial, again, points to the fact that Mary knew that Jesus was going to offer up his body as a sacrifice for mankind. So he says what she has done, it points to the fact that Mary's actions will be told to the whole world as an example of surrender and total abandonment to Jesus. David Guzik writes, it seems that the disciples did not want to think about the death of Jesus. When Peter heard of it, he tried to talk Jesus out of it. Mary had a different devotion, and instead of debating or denying his death, she turned it into an occasion of deep devotion. I think that's well said. And now notice in John 12, 9 through 11, the Jews plot to kill Jesus and now Lazarus. So we're told here in verse 9, when the crowd, when this large crowd of the Jews learned, literally they gained information by whatever means that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. Now, remember, this is important in, here in verse nine because before that, we saw that the religious leaders, they gave an edict. They gave a demand and says, when you, if anyone finds out any information about Jesus, you are to let us know. So there's probably some bribery there. Of course, they wanted to appease their religious leaders. So the, when the Jews learned, literally they're gaining all this information by whatever means. So people are out there investigating interviewing people, finding out where the whereabouts of Jesus are. So you can imagine this intensive search for Jesus and the man he raised from the dead. Now, raising Lazarus from the dead was one of the biggest miracles that Jesus had done into, in, in, in his entire public ministry. And so it had spread throughout all the regions prior to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. So you can see the intensity here. In verse 10, so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing. This word here for believing in the Greek is pisteo, and it means complete trust, complete reliance in Jesus. So they were abandoning the Sanhedrin, and they were following Jesus as the Messiah. So the plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus was to take place now on Palm Sunday. So as they were sacrificing, going through the cleansing, they were plotting how to murder now two people. And this shows you not just the disbelief of the chief priests that they had about Jesus, but also their defiance and their wickedness towards God because they're willing to kill people and justify it according to the law. Remember, that was something that Saul of Tarsus was doing because he was such a zealot, according to Philippians chapter three, until he got radically saved. So now most of the chief priests, remember, were Sadducees and they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they had to attack Jesus and Lazarus because in their mind, they're believing that this was a hoax that Jesus had devised somehow. And he was getting people to believe these things about the resurrection. And that was running contrary to what the Sadducees believed. So the chief priests were finding ways to try to get a hold of Jesus and Lazarus and kill them. Charles Spurgeon writes, when men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed and will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. 
which is a good segue now to me concluding this podcast. When you think of that quote from Charles Spurgeon and you look at Simon the leper who was cleansed, you look at Lazarus who was raised from the dead and he's dining with his closest friend and his disciples. When you see Martha serving these people and serving Jesus, and you see how Mary was prepped and ready to anoint Jesus to wash his feet, knowing that he was going to give up his life, that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then you see there's people out there plotting against Jesus and they want to kill him. They want to end his life. You got to ask yourself, my friends, where do you stand with Jesus? My prayer for you is that you be more like Simon, that you be more like Lazarus, that you be more like Martha, that you be more like Mary that you would love Jesus with all of your life. That's my prayer. And I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful for your support. And I want you to know that every day in my prayer life, I pray for this ministry that God has blessed us with to have this time with you on this podcast. And I just want you to know that I need your prayers as well. And we need your financial support. If you listen to this podcast and it's been a great blessing in your life, Would you do something for me, please? Would you prayerfully consider how you can continue to expand this ministry by giving a monthly donation? You can go to standstrongministries.org. You can click on donate and you can just send us even an email and let us know how we can pray for you or how this ministry has been a blessing to you, how you've been growing in your love and your knowledge of God's word. That's why we do this. It's such a joy. It's such a privilege. So I'm thankful that you guys continue to listen. I'm thankful that you guys are sending in such great uh, notes of affirmation. We just greatly appreciate it. It's, it just means so much to me. I just I, I just can't express uh, to you how much you, our audience here, means to me. So thank you guys. And until next time, keep standing strong. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.